Something that is surprising, when you think about it hard enough, is that the Bible is filled with lots of talk about babies. From beginning to end, there are blessed babies and and difficulties having babies for families. There are miracle babies. There are endangered babies. That's all over the Bible. You cannot escape it if you read it cover to cover. And at the same time, we know that the Bible's not about babies, right? That the, We've come to understand as we've studied Scripture together as a church family, we know that the Bible is primarily about the Christ, the Son of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. So we've got these two things happening at the same time, right? So given the prevalence of all the baby talk, and I by that mean talk about babies, uh, except for in Babel, Given the prevalence of all the baby, the talk about babies in the Bible and the central theme of the scriptures being the Christ, we should, as good readers of any book, we should expect that there is some sort of relationship between these two things, all the babies and the Christ. And as you've seen, if you've been with us the last few weeks as we've gone through our anticipating the incarnation series, which, and I'll just be honest, it has been more fascinating to me than I even thought it would be uh, when we started. It's, 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 a, it's a gift to have uh, a multitude of, of, of pastors um, that, that can see things differently from different angles in Scripture. Uh, so I haven't certainly be, been blessed by that. But as, as you've seen these past few weeks, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who has always been, He appeared as a man... On numerous occasions in the Old Testament. We saw that with the angel of the Lord. We saw that with the, the, uh, the word of the Lord. He appeared on numerous occasions. And that, those appearances of the eternal son foreshadowed his coming in the New Testament, the New Covenant. But as you noticed, when we, when we were going through those, those last three sermons, he never appeared as a baby, did he? God has never come as a baby had never come as a baby. And he certainly had never been born before. Being born as a baby is different than temporarily appearing as a man, as the Lord did, uh, as the angel of the Lord and the word of the Lord. Being born of a woman is a distinctly human attribute, which is why it's so central to the creed. We confess it every week, most weeks. Born of the Virgin Mary. Speak to Christ's humanity. The eternal Son of God's arrival as a baby cries out to anyone who will listen that he really and truly came as a human. But prior to the first Christmas that we celebrate, the eternal Son had never in all of history been born of a woman, which is to say he had never taken on humanity in its fullness. So while the Son, who is the word of the Lord and the angel of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord, had in time past, times past temporarily appeared as a man, this whole Christmas thing really is unique. This is why we, it's not a lot that we celebrate in the church calendar, is there? Christmas and Easter. The, the, the coming of the Son and the suffering and resurrection of the Son. It's very, it's, it's unique. Christmas is unprecedented. 
The incarnation, God become flesh, is unprecedented, was unprecedented. But what I want to show you this morning is it was not unexpected. Unprecedented, yes. Unexpected, no. While God himself had never become a child, his promises, God's promises had come in the form of little babies. And the words of God Almighty, spoken to his people, had taken on the, 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 the seeming fragility of infancy before. So we'll look at both of these in order. The, the, the promises of God coming in the form of children and the words of God as children as well. Real life in the flesh babies. First, let's look at the promises coming as children. And we'll, we'll do this fairly quickly. Think back to, for those of you who've been with us in Genesis, think back to that promise in Genesis 3.15 that an offspring would come from the woman, the baby, and he would crush the serpent and his works. That is the Bible promise. That is why we say the Bible is about Jesus because the Bible is about that story unfolding. So that's that first promise we have. And then Genesis is all about, as we, re, as we read Genesis, it's all about anticipating the arrival of that child, that offspring of the woman, a baby, in the line of the promise. Is it Cain? No, it wasn't Cain. Was it Abel? No, it wasn't him. Was it Seth? No. Noah? No. But the line of the promise kept moving forward, didn't it? As we've been studying, we're at Abraham now. We'll, we'll get into Abraham next week as we get back to Genesis. That line of the promise kept moving forward and moving forward, moving forward through children, babies. And then God expands on that Genesis 3.15 promise by telling Abraham that he and Sarah would have a child through whom the nations would be blessed. And to fulfill that promise, he sends a baby. He sends baby Isaac to the previously barren womb of Sarah. God's promise Abraham and to the world comes in the form of baby Isaac. And then God makes a promise to Isaac and tells him that Rebekah would have a child through whom the nations would be blessed. And to fulfill that promise, God sends twins to the barren couple. And God's promise comes in the form of baby Jacob. And again and again and again, as you read the Old Testament against all odds with impossibly late timing always, yet always right on time, a child is born in accordance with God's promises. And through those children, God's redemptive plan unfolds a little bit more. All right, you with me? That's, that's the promise section. Isaac first, and then Jacob. And then later on, there's very similar stories with babies born by God's power to barren wombs. Samson the warrior came this way. And then Samuel, the priestly prophet, came just like this too. And then we get to the New Testament, the last prophet. And there's John the Baptist, the prophet. There are lots of important miracle babies in the Bible who came to previously barren women. And all of these babies are in some way God's promises in the form of children. So then we ask, as we're kind of moving along now, should we not expect then that the story of redemption would continue this way, right? And, and, and perhaps include an even more miraculous pregnancy. 
There are those miracle conceptions. And there are also miracle rescue babies. Baby Moses is what I'm talking about here. Baby Moses had no business surviving the genocide of the Hebrew babies. Not on his own, but God's favor was with him and with his family. And it would be through this baby who would grow and become a man and deliver the people of God. So then, should we not expect, seeing the story this way, should we not expect that the deliverer of humanity might also be a baby born into danger? If we read the Bible like this, and this is how Matthew has taught me to read the Bible, if we read it like this, seeing these patterns, it should prime our expectations when we get to the New Testament. It should prime our expectations that God would fulfill His promise to bring redemption. And He would fulfill the promise to bring the snake crusher from Genesis 3.15. And this person would come in the form of a baby. And yet, none of those children that we've just talked about, as miraculous as they were, as, di- as divinely supernaturally born as they were, and as, as each of them has moved the story of redemption along as you keep reading the scriptures, none of those babies were God. If these miracle babies born to old ladies or saved from death by the child of the enemy, if that were the whole story, I'm not sure we would expect the deliverer that we meet in Matthew to be the actual child of the Lord. We might just expect him to have an extra plus spectacular story, right? So it would be like all of them, but a little bit better. But those babies are not the whole story. That's not the only babies in the Bible. There are other children in the Old Testament who are the words of God So the spoken words of God in human form. And I don't mean like what Josh preached, the word, capital W, the word of the Lord, as in God himself. But here I mean God's words to Israel. His instruction through the prophets actually came on quite a few occasions in the form of little children, babies. And there's some overlap between these kids that we're talking about here. Most of the children of the promise, so the... Isaac and those guys, most of those kids received names from God because the angel of the Lord, who we talked about last week, himself came to them and said, name the baby such and such. He he told the families what to name the kids and those names would have prophetic meaning. Those names were spoken by God himself and the babies became those, those names in flesh. God told Abraham to name the Promised baby Isaac. Do you remember that story? We'll, we'll get there in a few weeks in, 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 our, in our Genesis study. Isaac means laughter. So, so whenever Abraham and Sarah said their boy's name, come here, Isaac, they would be reminded that they once laughed at God and God's promises. God's naming of that baby boy stood as an always and forever reminder to them that God is faithful to his word. His words became flesh to remind them of who God is. We see this, uh, I think, probably the most remarkable aspect of this, because it especially points to Christ. We see this when God instructs David to name his son Solomon. Now, Solomon means 
rest. Think shalom. The Solomon sounds like shalom. Think peace. And so the child who becomes king after David, the son of David, who sits on David's throne, he gives Israel rest, peace from all her enemies. The words of God in the form of a child. So whenever Solomon's name was spoken, those words from the Lord, Solomon, that divinely inspired name, whenever that name was spoken, the people were reminded of the peace that God had brought Israel. God also told David to name Solomon Jedidiah. Solomon had two names, if you, if you didn't know that. Uh, and Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. It's not an accident that the son of David, who takes the throne of David, would have multiple names from God. One meaning the bringer of peace, one meaning the beloved of the Lord, which sounds a whole lot like Jesus' baptism, doesn't it? But the words of God arriving as little babies weren't always bundles of joy. All right, so there's, have you read Hosea before? (laughs) God told Hosea to name his children, and he gave them just bad names, scary names. The first child is named Jezreel by God because God wanted Israel to always be reminded of coming judgment. The second child God names Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy, to remind Israel that the Lord will not show them mercy. And the third child, God names Lo-Ami, which means not my people, because God wants to teach Israel that they are no longer his people. He's no longer their God. Those aren't good names. But those names are the words of God in fleshed, in, in baby skins, in bodies, for the people to be reminded of the words of God. This is not the end of the story of Hosea. Read Hosea. There's always redemption. When it comes from the Lord, there's always redemption in the long view, even in Hosea. But the point is, what I'm showing you is that God intervenes in history and he speaks into his people through these babies. And he he teaches these people through these babies' names. And he does that to comfort his people sometimes, sometimes to warn his people, sometimes to give them hope. God's words on numerous occasions come in the form of real life babies. So there are children who come as the promises of God, and there are children who come as the prophecies, the words of God. And that's what brings us to Isaiah this morning. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, because in Isaiah, we see both of these Bible themes coming together. They've been swirling around as you've read the scriptures, and then Isaiah kind of draws them close together to show us that the, the, these Words of God coming as, as, as babies point to the one very special promised baby. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to skip a stone through Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. These are the Christmas chapters of Isaiah, and so it's appropriate that we would be here this morning. Um, and it, you know, the reason I call this a prequel, a, a Christmas prequel, is because we're seeing the expectation here that Isaiah builds up for us. This will not be a full exposition of any of these passages. This is going to fly over them. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 7. They're not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to keep those Bibles open today. I'm going to get mine there too. Isaiah chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... 
Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. All right, let me give you a little context here. Israel is the northern kingdom. So you've got under Solomon or after Solomon, the king of peace, there was a civil war, and, and, and which was ironic, I know, but it just shows that he was not the promised one. So then the, the Israel splits into two, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Ahaz, when we get to Isaiah chapter 7, is the king of the southern kingdom. And Ahaz is not a great king. The author of 2 Kings tells us that Ahaz began to reign when he was 20 years old. And he reigned until he was 36. And he, this is, this is your, your tell in, in, in the history books, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he definitely did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz was pretty wretched. He sacrificed his own sons to the fires of the Canaanite gods. That's bad. And he regularly worshipped idols. On one occasion, Ahaz altered the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem so that it would look more like the pagan temples of Damascus. He wanted his temple to look like the temples of the gods that he thought were greater than the Lord God. And he took the altar of God, which had always been on the east side of the temple, and he moved it from the east to the north side of the temple, which is to say, Nahaz's opinion, that there is another way into the presence of God. Ahaz is a, as you read about him in, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, is living proof that God is patient. If you have ever wondered if God is patient, look no further than Ahaz. God is most certainly merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward jerks like Ahaz even. So how much more so, just as a, a comfort to you this morning, how much more so in sending Christ has he shown his mercy and grace toward you? All right, so when you read stories like Ahaz, don't get puffed up and think, I would never do that. Think, man, I need Jesus, because we do. Well, Ahaz, uh, while he, Ahaz was king of Judah, you have Israel up in the north, and Israel had struggled, and so they made an alliance with Syria, which is just to their north. And they came together, Israel and Syria attacked Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and they took more than 300,000 Judaites captive. That's a lot of people. Second Chronicles says that God allowed this. He handed, handed Judah over to these enemies uh, because of Ahaz's idolatry. But at the same time, Israel is also God's people, and God would not allow his people to take and keep their Jewish brethren as slaves. And so through a prophet named Obed, he made Israel send the Judaites back home. It's kind of an interesting story. It's, it's almost like trying to parent two siblings fighting, isn't it? Um, they both have to get punished here. So that's the political context of Isaiah chapter 7 in a nutshell. And this, this unholy alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria is terrifying to Ahaz and the rest of the people in Judah, the southern kingdom. Isaiah puts it this way. Look at verse 2. When the house of David, which is Judah, the southern kingdom, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz 
and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. See, they're scared. They're very scared. And that's when the Lord tells Isaiah to go out and have a chat with Ahaz. All right, Isaiah, Ahaz needs a pep talk here. So despite Ahaz's wickedness, I mean, everything that's happened to Ahaz, he deserves. But despite that, God in his patience and his mercy wants to teach Ahaz to trust him, to put his faith in the Lord. So in verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. And then look, look, look what he says to do. You and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So now Shear Jashub is one of these prophecies of the Lord that we've been talking about that comes as a child. You don't, you don't take your children with you for war party like meetings. This, this, is, this is bigger than that. Shear Jashub is one of these prophecies enfleshed as a child. And it means a remnant, his name means a remnant shall return. That's why the Lord is commanding Isaiah to take the child with him. This child is God's word to his people. God's promise of the continuation of, of God's people and God's blessing on them, despite all the current dangers and conspiracies and stuff swirling around them. And this assurance from God is there as a little child in the flesh staring at Ahaz. You just picture this little baby, this little kid staring at Ahaz, this mighty king, as Isaiah is speaking to him. The child is a sign from the Lord. No matter how bad things get, redemption is coming. The Lord will redeem his people. A remnant shall return. And, and what Isaiah tells Ahaz there is essentially, do not be concerned, Ahaz, about this alliance between Syria and, and Israel. They mean nothing. They will both be destroyed by another nation. In the meantime, you need to trust the Lord because the Lord is the only one who can take care of Judah. And he gives him this warning in verse 9. If, you are, if you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, your only option here. You look at all of your options on the table, all of your political options. The only one is to trust in the Lord. He is the only one who can protect you. There's salvation in no one else. Choose to trust in the world and you will get the world along with all of its troubles. Choose to trust in the Lord and you will receive protection and you will receive peace. And the reason Isaiah needs to tell Ahaz this is because he knows Ahaz has shown himself to be very tempted to trust political alliances instead of the Lord. He's being attacked by Israel and Syria from the north, but, but what we also know from the rest of Scripture is that he's got Edomites to the east encroaching and Philistines to the northwest encroaching, and because of their military strength, Ahaz sees the gods of all of these nations, all of the, the pagan gods of these nations, as more powerful than the Lord Yahweh. And that's when Ahaz starts to build additional altars. He starts building altars in the north and in the east and in the south towards Egypt. Every high place has an altar now because Ahaz is just tossing out as many bets as he can on whatever God is willing to help him. He trusts the gods of the nations and the power of the nations more than the Lord. Isaiah knows this. And so that's when the God, God our God, commands him to ask for a sign. So that Ahaz will know that the Lord will protect Judah. Look at uh, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask 
Anything you want is what he's saying here. Ask me anything. Ask of me anything, and I will give it to you. I want you to trust in me. Let your sign be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And Ahaz says, I will not ask. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to trouble you, Lord. I, don't, I do not want to put the Lord to the test. And the irony here is just rich. Ahaz is putting the Lord to the test. He's been testing the Lord's patience during his entire 16-year reign as king. What looks like piety here, oh, I don't want to trouble you, Lord, is totally false. Ahaz does not ask God to help him because he does not believe that God can help him. And with that response of faithlessness, Ahaz spends his last credit that he has with God. And now God is going to let him have it. And this brings us to the context of the Emmanuel promise. The Lord responds to Ahaz with the promise of a coming child, and his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So that right there should be a clue that whatever Isaiah is about to say next is not going to be a comfort to Ahaz. This is a rebuke. Do you feel it? That The tone here is harsh. He's rebuking him, saying, look, you have been awful towards your people. You killed your own kids. You're a lousy king. And now you're showing that same faithlessness and worthlessness towards God. Now look at verse 14. Therefore, this is what's coming. You're done, Ahaz. The Lord himself will give you a sign. You wouldn't ask for it. You wouldn't put your faith in the Lord. He's going to show you what's up. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what is the context that we normally hear this? Hopefulness. Right? We just read it in Matthew. Oh, this is beautiful prophecy. What a lovely story. This is great. This is, it is such a good thing to have God with us. But to Ahaz, this is not good news. To Ahaz, God with us, Emmanuel is a sign of judgment. Ahaz has been faithless for the last time, and now the judgment of God is coming on him. Don't miss this. Shear Jashub, Remember, this is the kid, the baby, the word of the Lord in the form of a child. He's with Isaiah when Isaiah says that the baby of the virgin is coming. All right? A remnant shall return. Manuel's coming. What's going on here? Well, in order to understand that, we've got to look at chapter 8. Chapter 8 flows directly from chapter 7. Uh, although the context is slightly different because Isaiah's conversation with Ahaz is over. In fact... Ahaz will not be mentioned again in Isaiah until he's dead. He is old news now. He's done. Emmanuel's coming. Judgment's coming for you, Ahaz. And that's it. The focus now is on Emmanuel. It's almost like when you read Paul's epistles, he'll be talking about something and then he busts out into some uh, doxology and he begins to praise the Lord. This is a similar shift for Isaiah. Ahaz is old news. Who is Emmanuel? It's almost like Isaiah is searching. Now that he's gotten this prophecy from the Lord, this has been spoken through him, he's like, wait, you're coming, Lord? Okay, tell me more about this. The focus now is on God coming in the form of this mysterious baby born to a virgin who also has something to do with judgment. And we open to chapter 8. We don't really know how much time has passed between 7 and 8. 
All we know is that Isaiah isn't talking to Ahaz anymore. So look at 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hash Baz. If you're looking for baby name ideas, guys, this is a good one. Belonging to Maher Shalal Hash Baz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Now, this is kind of hard to understand because we read large tablet and we think of like a chalkboard. This is like, think of this more like God is telling Isaiah to make a billboard and, and put it in a prominent place in common characters. I mean, so everybody can read it and everyone's going to walk by this, this Maher Shalal Hashbaz every day for a long time and think, what in the world does that mean? Because it translated into English, it doesn't help you much. It means speed, spoil, haste, booty. Booty as in stuff pirates take. Um. <laughs> and these witnesses are, are meant to verify that Isaiah made that giant billboard before verse 3 happens. Okay? So then you get verse 3. So there's the billboard. It's out there. We don't know how long it's been there. Maher Shalal Hashbaz is written on it. It belongs to him. And then verse 3 says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. That's spoil, uh, speed, spoil, haste, booty. And what this means, the way we understand it now, and still I could be wrong about this, but the way that most commentators understand this, it means that the coming invasion uh, that's coming to the northern kingdom in Syria, that coming invasion from Assyria is coming so fast, and it is so certain that the invading army will be collecting their plunder as they march through towns without even really having to fight for it. So this is just going to be a, a speedy, fast invasion of Assyria into the northern kingdom and their ally, Syria. Uh, and then verse 4, For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria is kind of new here as we're reading Isaiah, but it's not new if you're reading Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Assyria is, is the nation that Ahaz had put all his hope in. Assyria is the nation Ahaz had made a really bad deal with to protect Judah from Israel and Syria. And this deal that he has made, this, this, this deadly bargain, will work out for Judah temporarily. It's a short bet. Israel and, his, and, and Syria will not destroy Judah. Like, uh, they, they, they'll lose against Judah. But Assyria will grow and grow, and they will grow more greedy, and their power will increase and eventually, this will be the nation that invades Judah as well. Like I said, it's a short-sighted bet. It's, it's, it's a lose in the long run. Now, notice that the child, Mahershala Hashbad, is like Shir Jashub, in that he's another prophecy from the Lord in the flesh. The word of God become flesh. That's why Isaiah says that the prophetess conceived and bore a son. What do prophets do? They speak the word of the Lord. What might a prophetess do in this contest? She will bring forth the words of the Lord. The very words of God are being born by her in the same way that a prophet speaks the words of God. And this child, the word of God in the flesh, is a reminder to all of 
the southern kingdom of the coming judgment of God. The judgment of God coming to Israel and Syria for rising up against Judah and the judgment of God coming against Judah for trusting in foreign gods instead of the one true God. The, time, the, 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 the meaning of this baby is that the timeline is short. And this is where the Emmanuel stuff gets interesting. Because at the conclusion of this prophecy about Mahershala Hashbaz, Emmanuel comes up two more times. We always see him in chapter 7 and forget about him, but he's in chapter 8 as well. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. Therefore, the Lord is bringing up against them, against the northern kingdom and their ally, against them the waters of the river. That's, that's the... Uh, the, the, the rivers of Assyria, the mighty, mighty river of Assyria, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. Like you, you thought this was a good deal. It's not a good deal. The river is coming to you. The, the enemy is coming to you. And it will overflow and pass on, reaching up to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. There it is. Oh, Emmanuel. So whoever the child born of a virgin named Emmanuel is, Isaiah is saying he's going to come into a country whose people are faithless and who are all but snuffed out. This Emmanuel will come to a very, very weak nation. And then again in the next two verses, something even more interesting. Look at verse 9. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor, be shattered. Strap on your armor, be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God is with us. Emmanuel, there he is again. So on the one hand, in verses 7 and 8, Emmanuel is coming to a bad situation. But on the other hand, in verses 9 and 10, Emmanuel, his presence, God's presence with his people means no one can stand against them. Because the people of God have Emmanuel, all the nations in the world conspiring together could not destroy him. And this is where we begin to see, oh, I know who this is. I know who Emmanuel is. This, he's a king of some sort. And now we can see Isaiah is riffing on Psalm 2. All right? So turn with me to Psalm 2. It's in the middle of your Bible. It's at the very beginning of Psalm 2 comes after 1. And, and this is what happens in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The, you see the similarities? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, the Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, those nations who have conspired against God's people and his anointed. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, Isaiah pulling in some Psalm 2 for us to understand who Emmanuel is. Emmanuel just very well might be Messiah. He's, he's cluing us in here, assuming that we know the Psalms. To read it another way, the anointed one of the Lord, the Christ, of whom God says, you are my son, and who defends and leads God's people in Psalm 2, is God with us. Emmanuel, in Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9. 
It gets even more interesting because I, I more interesting because Isaiah hears from the Lord, and he begins to reflect on this. Isaiah's starting to get it now. I see what you're doing, Lord. Okay. We can look forward to this. He begins to reflect on this this Emmanuel prophecy, and he realizes he's coming, but he's probably not coming anytime soon. Verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. In other words, when these nations are conspiring together against the Lord... And against his people, Isaiah, you don't be afraid. They're nothing. I know that Ahaz doesn't believe you. I know that most of Ahaz's counselors don't believe you. But you, Isaiah, are not to be afraid. Again, Psalm 2. The Lord's anointed will crush those who are rising up against your people. Do not revere those nations. Do not think of them as great. Verse 13. But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. That kind of sounds like Jesus. Just as as an aside, what did Jesus say in Matthew 10? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's, That's what Isaiah is saying here. Look what Isaiah says next. Speaking of Jesus, look at verse 14. So we're, we're, I know I'm moving fast today. This is exciting. It, this is, this, just as, as you get a picture of this, when you think of what were the apostles doing to show that Jesus is the Messiah, these are the texts that they are using. And so, why did Jesus come as a baby? These are the texts that they're using. So this is what we're doing today. We're kind of doing Apostle Jesus work. Uh, apostle Church work. Here we go. Uh, verse 14. And he... And as he is referring to Yahweh, the Lord himself. He, God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now when God comes to be with us, is what he's saying here, when God comes to be with us as King Emmanuel, he will be a sanctuary for some, that is a place of worship for some, and an offense, a stumbling block to others. Now, when you read the Gospels, who's that? It's Jesus. When you read Paul in Romans 9, who's that? This is Jesus. When you read Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is Jesus. Peter in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, this is Jesus. He's the stumbling block, who's also the sanctuary. And Isaiah says, that's God. That's God himself, and he's coming but not yet. And how do we know? How does Isaiah know for certain that he's coming? Look at verse 18. Because of the babies. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents. That means miracles, wonders. They're signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah His name means the Lord will save. Isaiah says, I'm a sign. And then he looks at his children that the Lord has given him. And he's got, the remnant shall return. Baby remnant shall return. There he is. He's a sign that the Lord is sending Emmanuel. And then he turns and looks at speed, spoil, haste booty. (laughs) That's such a funny name. And he's a sign as well. Each of these people, 
Isaiah and Shear Jashub and Mahur Hashbath, these are all people in the flesh who are messengers from the Lord. They are in the embodiment of the words of the Lord, and they point to the reality that the child of the Lord is coming. The Messiah is coming. Emmanuel is coming. And that's what moves Isaiah into this absolute, pristine hopefulness when you get to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at Isaiah 9 verse 1. You are going to recognize these verses because these are the ones that Matthew pointed to and said, Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So we've had lots of doom and gloom, right? Hope in the future, but lots of doom and gloom. In the meantime, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the northern kingdom. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where did Jesus show up first? After Bethlehem, he moves up to Galilee. He's Galilean. Because he's, he's, the, he's the great light. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, those people up north, who have been suffering for, for generations and generations and hundreds of years because of their idolatry, those people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's saying this because that, they were the first to be crushed up north. They were the first to be taken away by Assyria but they will be the first to receive the light of the gospel. In other words, Messiah is going to be Galilean. Look at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. As on the day of Midian. So those northern kingdoms, the northern kingdom who's been oppressed by other nations, that oppression is going to be broken, as on the day of Midian. Now, who knows what that is? This was Sunday school, that you respond, but it's not. I'm going to tell you. The day of Midian is uh, in Judges chapter 6 verse, uh, through chapter 8. This is the Gideon story. You know the Gideon story, right? So the angel of the Lord... Think about last week. Who's the angel of the Lord? The eternal son of God who becomes the Christ. That guy defeats the Midianites and frees Gideon and God's people from oppression. That same type of victory, Isaiah says, is coming again. A battle won by the Lord, probably the angel of the Lord, to free his people. Only this victory will be permanent. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Which is to say, all of your war stuff is getting thrown in the fire. You're not going to need it anymore. All of their war stuff, the other guys, that's getting thrown into the fire because you won't need it anymore. There won't be any need for soldiers' equipment anymore. Because Why? Where is this hope coming from? How can you say we can put away all of our swords and our boots, our soldiers' boots and our soldiers' garments? What is the grounding for this hopefulness that Isaiah has in verses 1 through 5? We'll look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. 
the good news, the reason for the hope is the arrival of the baby. Now there's more to it that we'll see, but the very fact that this child is going to exist, Isaiah says, is a reason for hope. And who is he? Well, we are about to read the most impressive resume of any human being ever. First header. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he's going to be king. And what are all his names? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's four names. Name number one, Wonderful Counselor. Now we read wonderful and what do we think? Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. It's not what this means. Wonderful for us means delightful. Like like we had a wonderful night out last night. Literally, this means the counselor, the one who gives counsel, who does wonders, miracles. So he is a, a person who is full of wonders. So this is another one of those times where we borrowed King James English and it didn't help us that much. This is someone who is full of supernatural wisdom and he has supernatural abilities. That's who the wonderful counselor is. Name number two, mighty God. The child is God and he is, remember from Genesis, Gibberim. He is mighty, which means he's a mighty warrior. So the child is God. He's a mighty warrior God, which also reminds us of the angel of the Lord, right? Name number three, everlasting father. This is where we get confused <laughs> because we begin to mix up the Trinity here, right? Well, father here is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. We hear that and, and we, in our, in our good Christian confessions, think, oh, father, son, and spirit must be talking about the father. But Israel wouldn't hear it that way, would they? They would hear father and think of the Lord himself and his fatherly provision for his people. Isaiah is saying, the Lord himself, who has always provided for Israel, is now becoming a child, and he will be their king. Name number four, Prince of Peace. You can understand that one on your own. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. All right, a little bit more to the resume Here, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This reference to David, that goes back to Psalm 2 again. This is Messiah language. This is the, the reference to David means he's the son of David who is in King David's line. He's the one who will reign from David's throne. That means undoubtedly This Emmanuel, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, this is Messiah. And so now we know for the first time that Messiah, Emmanuel, are the same person and they're coming, he is coming as a baby. Messiah will be God with us. Emmanuel is Messiah. Messiah will come as a baby. That's the prophecy. That's the hope of Israel. So reading the Bible, should we expect that God would come as a baby? Absolutely. Yes. Hallelujah. With all of those babies of the promise, and with with the babies who were the words of God, the expectation is set. And then with these multi-layered prophecies of Isaiah, whose name means salvation is of the Lord, 
the baby who would come with many names, all those names, Emmanuel, which means God with us, Messiah, which means anointed one, the beloved son, the prince of peace, the mighty God, counselor who does wonders, the child of God. He is all the same person. And he's come to save us. And that's why the angel says to Joseph, call his name Jesus. Because that's confusing, isn't it? Well, you said his name was going to be all these things. His name is Jesus. Well, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. The Lord is salvation, which encompasses all of those names. And brothers and sisters, his return, just, just as his birth was expected, Jews don't like Isaiah. <laughs> they would rather have not this one in, in their Bibles. Because from Isaiah, his birth is absolutely expected. But when we read this and we go, yes, his birth was absolutely expected. Yes, he would come as a baby. We can have the same confidence looking at God's faithfulness through the Old Testament, through Isaiah to Matthew, we can have the same confidence that that person will return. His return, though, will not be as a baby. His babiness is gone. That baby has grown up into a man. And that man completed the Messiah mission in suffering and through his death for our sins. And as the conquering Messiah King, he defeated death. He rose from the grave. He ascended on high and sits at the right hand of the Father, Psalm 2 style. Just as God's word was clear that he would come the first time, it is also clear that he will return. Lord, come quickly. Amen? Amen. Let's praise him.